Hi everybody, welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. I have so many thoughts I want to share about BTS's book, which I've read multiple times now. So many takeaways, interesting facts, quotes, etc. So I'm just going to dive right into it and make this a two-part episode. With the 17 main categories, takeaways, and broad themes I want to discuss from the book in a random order. So no particular order of importance here. How I divided this into two episodes. Without further ado, we're diving right in. Number one thing I want to talk about is just the immense amount of care and consideration that went into making this book. Literally making it, producing it, every detail was taken into consideration. From the QR code incorporation to the interesting color scheme choices, they really did think through every detail and how to give it the maximum impact, much like BTS music. Not just the members who were each interviewed eight times separately. Every few months, they would have another check-in with the author, Myeonso Kang. The project actually started being talked about in 2019 and actually kind of benefited from the pandemic canceling their other plans. Instead of globetrotting, they had these kind of interviews in Korea. You can totally tell why Myeonso Kang is a renowned music journalist. It comes through loud and clear reading this. The viewpoint is from a fan. It is definitely biased in BTS's favor, but also pretty omniscient. Stepping back to look at the big picture and analyzing, okay, this is what it is about them. This is what made that release stand out or this history come to life. This moment became historic because of whatever. So between the quotes, the many parts that are just like an oral history, other segments of the book written by Myeonso King are really, really great summative descriptors. This book has been translated into over 20 languages, incorporated over 330 QR codes for a very cool interactive reading experience. So this is a great book for picky readers too. It holds your interest not just with the big font that makes the page count less daunting, but also with the QR codes, because as you read the behind-the-scenes story about different practice sessions or blog entries or the story behind the story, you get to actually scan the QR code and you can watch the video, read the post, etc. that is being talked about in the book. So you're kind of in real time interacting with the text in a cool way. It was also important that they included every BTS member's real Korean name in every translated version. So many other printing-related technical aspects of putting this book together were not easy, but they pulled it off, even convincing some publishers to work with Sunday publishing dates to make sure this would be released July 9th, which has sentimental meaning for us. They even chose very carefully the color choices for the lines that are diagonal on the cover art, the basic background, all of that. The book is really, truly, in a technical sense, carefully crafted. And that really came through based on the substance of the text and the actual just physical product. Really well done. Another interesting thing the book does is it kind of gives you a playlist of BTS's life, at least the early years. The songs and artists shouted out as yeah, always playing in their dorms, influencing them as they made their own music. It tells quite a story of them forming their own musical path. Yoon Murray, J. Cole, Wiz Khalifa, Nas, Drake, Notorious B.I.G., Tupac. The author also brings up different, unique, unexpected analogies. At one point comparing Jungkook's layered emotions in the song Euphoria to Riley from Inside Out. 
There's also an interesting comparison that is quite memorable, referencing a play, Lusso Blue, I apologize if I mispronounced that, in the Love Yourself era. The phrase refers to happiness that lies close at hand. Topic number two, let's talk about how the story starts. The first chapter about Big Hit Entertainment in its infancy, especially compared to now, it's wild to think now it acquired Ithaca Holdings for a trillion won, plus acquired Weverse, all that stuff, because the origin story is very humble. It gave off a startup vibe, but this is a really interesting further dive into what the culture was like. The author says at the time of their debut, only about 10 groups a year in the K-pop world were deemed a success. And extra success and pressure was riding on BTS because they came from a non-Big 3 company, an underdog company with the funds that match an underdog. And the company truly, the financial sustainability of Big Hit was dependent on BTS. The stakes felt even higher because the girl group Glam failed to really break through. So now all the big hit entertainment resources were being just totally channeled into this one group. They got rid of the contracts with all the other boys, just these seven members now, no pressure. The company had some clout thanks to co-managing 2AM. They also were known for some other groups beforehand, but this was really new for them. It's a lot bigger and more resource-consuming to debut an idol group as opposed to a group of ballad singers. The author points out something that doesn't feel true to me, but the claim is that the number of K-pop idols who also have taken on acting gigs has diminished over time. Like, instead of feeling like they had to become famous singers and actors simultaneously, now less often, which I don't see as the trend. But maybe I'm misinterpreting it? But anyway, Jin basically got suckered into this, thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to be an actor at the same time, and that didn't end up happening. The author really gives a ton of credit to SM Entertainment, not necessarily unearned, but it's just interesting, highlighting how SM helped usher in Sataiji and Boys, HOT, these boy groups that really gave rise to first-gen K-pop as we know it, and idol music as it's called. And relatedly, Kalgunmu, a term for this type of performance prioritization. Like an artist's release is not just swag, it's about tight choreography. So with the rise of the interest in that type of performance-focused group, the changing description of an idol group and just an ideal group, that really affected the early direction of BTS. They weren't becoming the hip-hop group they once envisioned. Although it looked like it, the company dorm was 15 guys at first, training and basically having their own makeshift rap 101 class. It's described in the book as like a rap class that the rap trio in BTS would teach, basically. Get other people familiar with constant rap and hip-hop playing in the dorms. The others also kind of helped pitch in. Jin helped with cooking and cleaning. J-Hope helped teach dance. So they really were like a school of boys. Interestingly, despite the fact members like Jimin had more of a dance background, there were two tiers of trainees, and the rappers were the ones who got in group one, considered the group with higher likelihood of actually debuting, higher potential. There's an interesting contrast there because apparently RM, Suga, and J-Hope were so past ready to debut. They were like, we've been working on this rap and hip-hop forever. We've had our own makeshift lessons and classes and whatever. We've taught everyone else. We're the master. Student became the master. Let's debut already. The others felt way too premature to debut. Like, whoa, we just got into this. 
V in particular had been in classes just for six months before this was all really picking up the pace. So it's so interesting how they managed to pull it off with such different, being at such different places on the spectrum of readiness. This company's struggling, the pressure is on to debut a successful group, SM Entertainment has helped shift the goalposts for what's ideal in a group, and seven boys that are now the all the company has left after paring down, releasing the others from the contracts, all that stuff. Now the pressure's on for these seven people with different skill levels, different types of experiences, to come together and make this happen. Already a movie-ready story, with lots of potential to go off the rails. Apparently, Big Hit was very meticulous, though. Doing, like, a ton of research, trying to find a specific, almost mathematical formula. Like, what are the ingredients we specifically need to make this a success? There were a lot of consultations with industry figureheads, and sometimes even a reward incentive. Like, if you worked for Big Hit and came up with a really great promo idea, you would get a reward. All of this consulting was extra difficult given the fact the office for meetings was beyond cramped. In fact, Mr. Bang's office, he had to rent out more office space, which was another financial burden, but also his main office could fit three people in it. That's it, three people at a time, with the third having to sit on the floor. Each member's before they became BTS origin story is laid out in this book, but I'll just kind of summarize it much more in depth in the book. Like I said, Jin was kind of misled into thinking he'd get more of an acting focus in 2011 when he joined. He actually before had been kind of all over the place, even spending a month as a farmer because his parents suggested it. J-Hope had been so in love with dance pre-joining Big Hit, he couldn't afford the tuition, but still he would actually go to the dance studio to watch the paying dancers practice anyway. And one day he was invited to join them. That's how he ended up in the dance crew Neuron, hence the deeper meaning of the Neuron lyric in Chicken Noodle Soup. And fun fact, that guy who first introduced him, which led to him being in a dance crew, getting that experience, that guy was nicknamed Bangster Lee Byun-un, who is now a high performance director. Small world. RM had sought out a rap career and auditioned for Big Deal Records in 2009. But in an after-party for the audition, he met the rapper Sleepy, who helped with networking and eventually led RM to Big Hit. Jungkook had several offers extended, but he was extra eager to go with Big Hit after going online and watching RM's videos and fanboying over them. He's like, I want to be with RM's company. He's so cool. Plus, it helped that Mr. Bang had been a mentor on Star Audition, The Great Birth. Jungkook was actually considered quite young at the time, now I think actually it might be a bit more common, but back then to be only 15 was relatively young. The other members describe dorm life as chapter 1 pre-Jungkook and chapter 2 post-Jungkook, although who was really considered the final finishing touch member, who was at first called like the hidden member, the secret member, was V. They felt quite bad for him because as the other members kind of got to start forming a fan base, showing the behind the scenes of rehearsals, V's face was not known to them yet. So he wasn't getting the same love, albeit from a small group. Topic number three. Bang Seehyuk, aka Mr. Bang, the big hit entertainment boss, and his interesting hands-on decisions. He made some interesting choices over the years that are discussed in the book. 
they've had to be pretty honest with him at times disagreeing. They did not like DNA at all at first. They thought it was kind of blah, and his melody at first was just, they didn't like it. They told him so, and he had to totally redo it. They were like, DNA is not it. He also did not work on one of their favorite eras with War of Hormone because War of Hormone was meant to be like a safe choice, a mainstream appeal follow-up to their less expected, I guess, debut singles. So he was very worried at the time of War of Hormone, how do I make sure this group kind of goes back to the familiar success stories? But since day one, he has trusted the rap trio to compose and write their own stuff. He considered it difficult, but something they could do to bridge that idol music and hip-hop divide. He really got hands-off later on. He especially was hands-off, trusting them more than ever in their own vision and timeline when they worked on B during the pandemic. But it was his idea to really follow up that relatively mellower release with dynamite, literally dynamite. He seems to be always thinking ahead to how to get back to the next crowd-pleasing bop between experiments. He's very business-minded. But the seriousness is not ever present. And in the book, they say he said, quote, You lot effin' smashed it, unquote, after their fake love performance. He was so giddy and out of character after they nailed it. And after Love Yourself Tear became the first Korean album to hit number one on the Billboard 200 in its history, the chart history. Topic number four, they go in-depth on rap battles and the rap disses of their early days. They contrast two major moments for the group as rappers, members of a hip-hop scene of sorts. One was the infamous Be Free diss, when the rapper Be Free dissed them. That's the long story short, public diss that felt like it came out of nowhere and was punching down. Later, Bobby from Icon, he dissed them publicly but in a way they interpreted as much more fair in the world of rap, where back and forth like that are just part of it. Like, B-Freeze felt like punching down, Bobby's felt more like a playful come-at-me moment. Like, starting something, but both sides were in on the joke. They knew they were starting something. So that's how the members interpreted Bobby's comment as, in the spirit of rap, all good, not bad faith, not just mean-spirited. This all went down in summer 2014. The rap battle show, Show Me the Money, was so big on Mnet, because it really was perfectly like the show version of BTS's goal, to merge the worlds of idol music, quote-unquote idol music, and rap, hip-hop, underground artists. It was basically a mainstreaming of the pop culture landscape that blurred those lines, didn't see them as mutually exclusive to do both kinds of music. So a huge opportunity to prove themselves publicly, the pressure was on to diss Bobby back, keep it going. They were very much the underdogs, though, the nobodies in the equation, because Bobby had already built up kind of a following by then, because he was on Win Who Is Next, a show with B.I., former fellow Icon member. Bobby actually dissed several artists, all in the song called Come Here, so yeah, naturally provoking a response. BTS felt like they were preparing for a massive, massive Mama's performance at that award show to really prove themselves. So amid intense preparation for their biggest performance yet, basically, RM found out about this diss. From the book, quote, If RM didn't respond to Bobby at the Mama, which would be his first performance after the diss, any later responses would lack all impact. But RM had less than a day to compose new lyrics. 
Meanwhile, Big Hit Entertainment staff exchanged constant communications, considering all the issues that might arise from RM's response. It was only right for RM to respond to rap with rap. He had been dissed three times so far, and responding with silence was out of the question, unquote. So RM responded kind of in three ways. One, pretty indirect. He posted on Twitter a picture of lyrics from Do What I Do by Verbal Jint with a poignant message. One was more direct as part of the Mamas, and then there was his time on the show Problematic Men, where he actually said the publicity from this rap battle he's basically thankful for. Quote, I felt like whenever something bad happened, something good happened too, unquote. So the diss was, the pressure was on to respond to it, but then it got the group a ton of PR, which helped him get on the show, which in turn gave the group more PR. Quite a cycle they got on following this. The book also goes into the major TV moment when RM was asked about this stuff on the Four Things show and how he sees himself in the world of hip-hop. But we've talked enough about this chapter of their career, so let's move on. Topic number five, the underdog status of the group. Struggles to fit in, to measure up against the big three company artists from the big major labels, constant comparisons to other groups, particularly XO, and what the idol label means to them. This book is full of moments where it's like the quiet part was said aloud, and the things people have talked about online forever have been now officially printed. They call out the comparisons to XO, Block B, etc. And the fact BTS were accused of capitalizing off of Big Bang's success, which is kind of just bizarre to me because if you follow in the footsteps of someone successful, why would people be mad you're capitalizing on that? That's just how life is. You emulate and try to become like the people you look up to. I mean, it's very strange. Anyway... The book at length talks about the rumor spreaders, the smear campaigns against BTS, constant comparisons to big three company groups. They were compared to XO a ton, who had debuted a year prior. They were also seen as part of a big competition with Winner, who debuted from another big three company, Summer 2013. Block B was compared to them a lot. They had a joint stage actually in 2014 at the Mamas. They really do sound like they felt like loners in the green room before K-pop music shows and stuff. Before performances, big three company artists seemed to mingle and network, but they had no clout to do that, no seniors in the industry to do that, no one to guide them to do any interacting. So they were kind of off to themselves in those bustling backstage rooms. In addition to feeling like loners in the green room who did not know the social circles of the big three companies, BTS also expressed apprehension about pre-recording green room activity because that was their first time really getting to up close compare themselves to other artists because they could watch all the performances with the audio feed and the TV screens. This is one of the reasons Suga says in the book, after they debuted, he didn't really feel like they actually debuted yet. Because everyone treated them the same, they were still kind of just cast away. The interest did not escalate overnight. They later recall refreshingly kind treatment from fellow artists when they worked with Coldplay on My Universe. RM said, quote, We run into several kinds of artists overseas. There's the kind who are like, Oh, you guys are famous these days, good job, and seem to look down on us a little. And those who are all business and go, I really want to do a song with you. And there's a third category, position between the two. But Chris Martin was none of these three. He was an exception. 
It was the pandemic, but he insisted on coming. He said, so you guys can't come? Then I'll go to you. We were so surprised. You had to go through quarantine when you entered Korea back then, and that would have been a significant time commitment for him, but he really came, unquote. He worked on their collab in person, went through quarantine in South Korea to make this happen despite the pandemic, and he was just like, no problem, I'll come to you. That respect and care really touched them. You can tell in the way he talks about this and about the contrast to the lack of genuine joy to just work with them. Not just meet someone famous, but to work specifically with them as equal colleagues. You can tell that Coldplay was refreshing in how they seemed just down to earth, treating them at the same level. It seems rarer than you might think. The author also dives into the framing of idol groups, period. And in Korea specifically, how idol groups are seen as kind of rookies. Then you go from an idol to an artist. Like, you gotta prove you're legit and worth your artistic label. There's also some discussion about BTS's song idol, which really helped them literally reclaim the word on their own terms. And while doing so showed how diversity is a big strength of the group, the video combined everything from traditional Korean rhythms and the incorporation of a traditional Korean game to South African rhythms. They took inspiration from all over to redefine what a true idol is in their own minds. I love, love, love this quote from the author. Quote, there is also the highly misogynistic assumption that because fans of idol music tend to be women in their teens and 20s, the music must be of poor quality, unquote. If you check out my episode of Enthusiasts, shameless plug, it's called The Past, Present, and Future of Boy Bands, I talked to music writer Maria Sherman, who wrote a book about boy bands, and we talk about this, about the weird assumption that the kind of music it seems like a bunch of teenage girls like is inherently less high quality than other music that other demographics like. And the reversal of that, the poptimism trend, as some call it, to reclaim unapologetic joy and cherishing of just good bubblegum stuff. So that's a discussion in a separate episode, but I'm just saying I was reminded of it and the continued relevance of addressing the stereotypes around pop music that were brought up in the book. I also really, really love how boy bands are talked about quite a few pages later. Quote, Western media's image of boy band fandom is women in their teens and 20s who stay up all night to catch a glimpse of the groups they like and chat about their favorite members for hours. There is some truth to this, but as much time as BTS's fans spend on raving over their favorite band, they also each have lives they are living out as individuals. Which is why, perhaps, the question to ask ARMY and any K-pop fan isn't why are you a fan, but what life, beyond being a fan, are you living now? Only then can we get a step closer to the young Saudi Arabian woman in their traditional clothes gathered around a stadium to catch the faintest utterance of their favorite artists practicing inside, shouting their names in recognition, unquote. Think about that for a second. Perhaps the question to ask is not why are you a fan, but what life are you living now because you're a fan? How has it changed your life? That's such an interesting reframing. That it's not like, why do you like them? But you don't just tell them why, you show them why by showing how your life is different. Maybe you have a bigger friendship circle now. Maybe you have special memories now from events where you bonded with other army. Maybe it just changed your mental well-being because their music is so therapeutic. 
maybe you're living life more open and honest now as your full self because their music taught you to embrace who you really are. However their messages resonate with you and leave an impact, that provides much more in-depth, important responses than just, why do you like them? Because it really does go quite deep. And the book does detail the feelings surrounding that big show they did in Saudi Arabia, where they were baking in the heat, felt really bad rehearsing again and again, asking the crews to stay on despite the heat. They were trying to perfect the show, and women in head-to-toe cloth were cheering for them. And the interesting question might not necessarily be why they were willing to do that, but what kind of lives they feel like they can live now that let them feel not self-conscious to the point of not doing that. What made them feel free to sing in a group publicly for their faves? Topic number six, interesting markers of their popularity changing. There are quite a few interesting facts in the book that really show just incredible growth over time in their fame. First of all, remember, BTS's early blog once took three days to get its first comment. Three days for one comment. Now look at them. Some of the most liked tweets of all time, seriously. They also noticed a huge uptick in fame through album sales over time, crashing the melon site, which we'll get to in a minute, and then the Chilean public service broadcaster doing coverage of ARMY back in 2017, who had camped out to score BTS tickets. The book uses that example to show this let it sink in moment. 2017 globally was really big. The book also recaps what happened when BTS's single Dynamite hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. A huge moment for them they did not expect at all. J-Hope was actually asleep when it happened. The joy didn't last long either because they said as soon as they found out it hit number one, they got a huge new schedule of new promo. And they entered promo mode for longer than they ever had for one release. So they were promoting Dynamite for two months straight, longer than any single promo ever. The book talks about the album sales over time, mentioning how many units were sold in the first week from 772 to well over 2,600. The most beautiful moment in life reached over 55,000 in the amount of time it took Dark and Wild to reach over 16,000, from over 16 to over 55,000 in the same amount of time. It just kept going up. Map of the Soul 7 is still their best selling ever, I believe, with over 4 million copies sold. There are other interesting moments in the book where you stop and think, oh my gosh, this is so interesting in contrast to the last thing they said about popularity. Like they described the front row, the front row, only a dozen or so fans at BTS's first big stage show. They could all fit in one row of seats. It was that few of them. And then later on, as they left a music broadcast, suddenly it was so packed outside with people screaming for them, they had to stop letting people in for safety reasons. The other big moments that drive home, wow, this is really skyrocketing fame, like when they went from going to McDonald's as trainees to having their own McDonald's meal in 50 countries, at least. Number seven. Relatedly, savvy marketing. A big takeaway I got while reading this book is that the success of BTS, just in a technical sense, marketing-wise, is just a mix of smart minds and luck. Luck with timing. Like, certain releases, certain announcements came for them at the same time some other relevant thing was happening, they had a second project to promote, their suspense built on itself multiple times. 
One big thing the author emphasizes is how ahead of the curve BTS was with online means to build up a fan base. With the blogs, with Bantan TV, pre-release videos, all that stuff was newer. They were also some of the first ones to the trend of K-pop artists on Twitter and Kaiko Talk, all these different forums, plus the V-Live beta version was running on Navar soon after The Most Beautiful Moment in Life, Part 1, was really taking off. They also had moments where just the risk-taking is described as having really just paid off tenfold. Like when they released the Wings concept book, that photo book was a, a risk. At the time for a K-pop group to promote that way, instead of just a tried-and-true photo shoot, it was risky, but it did lead to revenue, for sure. They also went bold with the idol challenge. With a dance challenge like that on YouTube, you really don't know how many people will participate or what they're going to do with your prompt. When you make it kind of user-generated, that's a risk. They've also, over time, done more than other K-pop groups when it comes to unscripted live content. Like on YouTube, during the pandemic, we've had Suga painting, just painting what comes to mind. The YouTube live streams during pandemic lockdowns, I personally found so effective at making you feel bonded to the members because they kind of had the feel of, that intimate feel of learning more about their story through their docu-series. Their documentary content and interviews and stuff, V-Lives, etc. have that same openness. And especially with Suga's painting sessions, like how he ended up painting without realizing it, a shade of blue, a dark shade of blue, a color he despises. He associates it with 5 a.m., the time when his anxiety is at an all-time high. That's peak anxiety time for him. And he says that's kind of the color of the sky. Right before sunrise, he dreads it, but he subconsciously started to use it. So the painting he made on that live stream was what art is all about. It's whatever pops in your head without even really thinking about it. What's on your mind, give it a visual depiction. It was really vulnerable for him, proof of how unguarded he is when talking to fans casually, and it's also just extra interesting. He always gives fans not just companionship, but something to think about after he shuts off the live stream. In this case, the color blue, its many meanings, and the duality in the painting title. He said he named it both Mourning, like M-O-R-N-I-N-G, and Worry. It was also smart timing, backing up for a second, with the Wings photo book coming out right around the time they added Beyond the Scene as an official name meaning for the acronym. Then there was When Dynamite came out, Squid Game and other interesting K content was all the rage. There was Armypedia, that giant scavenger hunt with over 2,000 puzzle pieces around the world to find. Then the in-person after-parties for it in Seoul proved they had the fandom passion now that they didn't even need to show up and fans would gather. Then they literally broke the internet, or at least broke the melon site, in April 2019, when Map of the Soul Persona came out and crashed it. This is really interesting context. Quote, in 2019, 10.28 million Koreans used music streaming services, with Melon boasting 4.1 million active monthly users. For an entire platform of this magnitude to go down because of the demand for just one album was like a pebble being thrown into the ocean, displacing all of its water into space. Unquote. Big Hit's offices really got to actually literally expand out of that tiny three-person room and the like. Once Young Forever became a big success, the author frames it interestingly as, quote, what could be achieved when Bang Sihyuk's ambition met capital, unquote. 
Besides that analysis of when ambition meets capital, a frequent theme in the book is how many times their marketing has paid off when it's been interactive. Not a one-way street. When they let fans do their own thing. I love the phrasing of permission to dance in the book as something that has meaning that can only be complete once people actually dance, once a live audience sees it. There's also a beautiful description of our special concert finale song, Microcosmos, and how when it plays, it's like ARMY become the main characters in the story, forming a collective memory in the author's phrasing. From the early days, it may have actually helped to be underdogs, because they felt extra pressure to cultivate a fandom with quality over quantity being okay. They were more okay with taking time to just really bond stronger with the small fan base they had via blogs and stuff, then worry about quantity later. And the quantity just came naturally from the quality and extent of those fan interactions. Run BTS is also described as pretty historic for K-pop programming. Before that, artist TV activities were very relegated to the main broadcast networks. Main major corporation-owned and run, quote-unquote, safe TV programming. Run BTS felt a lot looser than that. The author also describes how their work really took risks musically with the ways they used R&B melodies, hip-hop influences, the unusual lack of a high pitch or high notes compared to other groups' amount of times they do that. And at the time of them doing it, it wasn't as common to have a whole universe built in your music videos. This whole world building where one video doesn't fully make sense narratively if you don't watch other videos too. So it makes you extra invested time and energy-wise into a bigger fictional narrative. And their ability to tell profound, sprawling narratives was really crystallized with I Need You, which was considered a risk because it wasn't your typical dance-pop, bubblegum title track. It was different and more of an emotional gut punch, plus the video was pretty raw and graphic by K-pop standards, very intense emotionally. But it was huge, scoring them their first music show win in May 2015. Topic number eight. Key performances. Big, formative, career-defining performances that really put them on the map for different reasons, plus key award shows. Big public events. The Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Mama's performance, was really a big moment for them to show what they were capable of and how they could bring to life such a symbolically rich video into a new live show format, they were able to translate that. Not everyone can do that, let alone so well. There was Jimin with the blindfold from the video, sort of like from the video, not an exact replica. Jungkook suspended in the air, V falling to the ground, showing the spots where the wings were missing, queuing up the suspense with Intro Boy Meets Evil, J-Hope dances solo, then fades into darkness before Jimin emerges. They then just topped it off with some good fun with fire. They brought blood, sweat, tears, and fire to that mamas. It was also the year they took home the grand prize, another way they managed to make their own hype build on itself for multiple reasons. One moment focused on is that 2014 major mamas performance, really helping them get on the map because visually it was really well done. Danger was great for the venue, from the rock-inspired ending to the large-scale set of background dancers and formations. It was super eye-catching and memorable, with all the dancers in black while the members wore white. It was also described as a starting point for crafting performances like Fire. Danger was the blueprint setter. 
Then there was their iconic Olympic Gymnastics Arena show, a big milestone for K-pop acts. It used to be South Korea's largest indoor arena. This is interesting. Quote, the time between BTS's debut and their first performance in the Olympic Gymnastics Arena was longer than the time between their Olympic Gymnastics Arena performance and their first worldwide stadium tour, during which they filled the 100,000 capacity Jamsil Olympic Stadium. Unquote. They went from small to big stage, basically, but then in half the time went from big to biggest stage. Sugar recalled bursting into tears during an Olympic gymnastics arena show that was on Parents' Day because he saw his parents in the crowd. Another touching performance was, of course, that 2017 AMA's one, which was quite a boy band tribute in 2021 as well, with New Kids on the Block and New Edition invited. That year they also won three awards, they performed, it was a big moment. The BBMAs, the MMAs in 2018, which really balanced showing that BTS works with modern and traditional dance sources of inspiration. The Wembley Stadium show was big. It was set to be their largest on the tour, on the Love Yourself, Speak Yourself tour, with an audience of 60k. And it was part of their first tour, by the way, that would be stadium only. All stadiums. There was the Elysian Stadium mini Vegas residency, the Grammys performance, where they had only a day to rehearse because of Jungkook and J-Hope getting COVID, the jacket trick, and other James Bond-inspired moves, huge sources of nerves to pull off, especially with so little practice. And V actually admitted he didn't whisper anything. In that kind of sketch intro in Olivia Rodrigo's ear when he's whispering something, he was whispering nothing, just kind of like gibberish. There was the on performance in Grand Central Terminal for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. They had to keep mixing things up for BTS Week on Fallon, from sitting in a roller rink to a performance with The Roots. There was the Tiny Desk Show. They've had to do their hits in so many different forms and keep it fresh. That creative challenge has bound to have made them just better, more impressive performers with that practice. The Black Swan performance, Barefoot on Corden show doing it, they always surprise. We're going to leave it there for today, save the rest for the next episode, so stay tuned, it'll be wherever you're listening to the show right now, very, very soon. Bye everybody, talk soon.